0: All right,
1: everybody, welcome. Um, Welcome to Theory Underground. I'm your host, Dave McCarriker. And today we have a very special event for you all. We are in Bloomfield, Ontario, an hour outside of Kingston, where we drove in from this morning. And we are at the McLuhan Institute in the flesh for real. And it's really exciting to be here to have met Andrew now. We've known each other for years, or at least we've known each other online. And now we're here. And so the way we're gonna do this is we're going to open it up with Andrew sort of introducing us all online and in person to this space um, and kind of talking a little bit about it, historicizing it maybe perhaps, but then he'll be basically introducing us and then we will all give our presentations and then it'll come back to him and then he's going to kind of reflect on all of that and then we'll do a q a and it'll all be over within an hour and a half easily um if we are having too much fun it could go as long as two hours but it won't go longer than that and then um we're all going to get we'll, we'll close out on the zoom side we'll close out from the actual event and then um, for the people who are here in person he's going to actually give us a little <coughs> tour of the archive and so For the seeing impaired in the audience, just know that we are in this um, wonder if you like the smell of books, if you like libraries that don't just throw away old books and replace them with random newsstand trash, um, then you would love this space because it first of all smells like books. Second of all, it has lots of old books and uh, there's a lot of McLuhan ones. So we're really excited for that tour as well. But um, I guess that's all I'll say for now. Please put your hands together for Andrew McClellan. Are we gonna, yeah. oh. this will be like the speaker we'll spot.
2: Speaker spot. Yeah. Cool. Oh, there go. oh.
0: Hey, uh, thank you so much. Um, it really is a, a pleasure to welcome you guys to the McClellan thank Institute. You. This is a big deal for me. Um, because this is the first this first actual event i've hosted here um that's ever been hosted here what was previously hosted here was with sheep or maybe maybe pigs we're not entirely sure (laughs) but this is a former pig or sheep barn um which my, my dad converted to be his library back in 2005 uh and after after he passed away in 2018 um after we bought the place for my mom in in 2020, uh, it's been mine uh, and I started the McLuhan Institute and here we all are. Uh, So this is very exciting, it's exciting uh, to do this, to see people in the flesh that, uh, you look just like you're online. (laughs) It's
1: incredible, (laughs) it's remarkable. That's what I thought about you, I was like, what? Wow. You it's, actually look the way you do. I mean, it's
0: it's something that provides constant amusement and irritation. That we have, uh, we have a local paper here, and there's somebody who writes in the local paper, and she often she does a weekly, you know, times gone past article, uh, and the picture of her is got to be 60 years old. I'm not <laughs> exaggerating. It's of her 20 year old self, and she's got to be like 80 now, and so she does not look anything <laughs> like her, her present, her other uh, it's a little disconcerting. Uh, but so here we are. Um, welcome. I'm really excited to host this event, Theory Underground, uh, which I'll have more to say. And I'm going to wave the book at you that I left over there, but, um, we're here because, uh, this book was put out uh, a compilation of various modern thinkers, including, um, I was asked if, if I would contribute a piece, uh, however, I didn't have time to, to get one done, but I managed to convince my uncle to let us put one of Marshall's pieces in there. Um, and it's a piece that Marshall wrote kind of in response to Lewis Mumford, um, who, you know, I st- I've yet to track down what precisely Marshall was responding to, um, but apparently Lewis Mumford didn't care for uh, Marshall bringing him up in some of his work, um, <laughs> and must have written something, which Marshall then responded to in a really, uh, in a kind of glorious way, uh, I think. But um, so that's that's ostensibly while we're here, we have uh, Anne and David who are going to who've contributed to the book and they're going to say a few things. Uh, we haven't have an audience member in the flesh, including the uh, thousands of people who are tuning in from around the world right now. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just the same, I think it's it's going to be fun and I'm very much looking forward to it. After they're done, I'm going to say a few words. And as, as you can see here, I have a very extensive list of comments <laughs> uh, to, to read. <laughs> so um, without further ado, who's going first? Dave.
1: Uh, Dave. Cool. cool. I, I, I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> <I really laughs> All right. right, there we go. If you were to introduce me, i would be, like, <laughs> be like, "Well, I, re- I remember this one Facebook post. It was very memorable." <laughs> yeah. Um, what's up, everybody? And so, I, I guess yeah, I should introduce myself. Um, so I f- am the founder of Theory Underground. Uh, Theory Underground is. A critical media theory experiment, right? That's that's what it is. And it and it my my new book Time Energy just came out because Theory Underground is also a publishing house. Um, it's a course site platform. It's um, a way that people who are in dialogue with me or co instructing courses with me or who are students at Theory Underground are able to. Um, develop their thoughts blog their thoughts on the platform and then those can make it into future volumes if they are something that fits into it and so in a sort of sense when I say it's an experiment in critical media theory what I mean is that it is based out of this tradition that was founded by Marshall McLuhan Um, but that the critical part is that you know critical theory idea right critique of power and in institutions that goes back to the time of Marx but it goes through the Frankfurt School people such as Michel Foucault can be considered critical theorists depending on uh, who you are but it, you know if you take a course in critical theory then they will typically teach um, yeah basically from Marx through uh, Foucault you'll get the Frankfurt School guys along the way Derrida will be in there as well um, but What is all of that? And how does it actually relate to media theory? These are kind of the ideas that I want to touch on in a sort of um, introductory way. And and I don't want to go too in depth and I kind of want to keep it relatively brief Um, and and, and this to be more of not just an introduction for you all, but to kind of give you a sense for some of them, what I would say are essential threads that I'm kind of holding on to Um, And that I aim to continue researching through the work that I'm doing with Theory Underground. So the last thing I'll say about the experiment at Theory Underground is that it's an experiment in the medium itself. The goal is to create a new kind of medium, one that could potentially be inspirational for uh, and useful to independent academics. And of course, there's no such thing as a strict independence will never be independent. Um, And there is no such thing as a thinker independent of others. Every thinker requires interlocutors for the dialogue. Every thinker throughout history has required uh, patronage of some sort because they obviously were not doing manual labor. Um, So what do I mean by independent? I just mean independent of institutions. And it's not because institutions are bad. But it is because a lot of us the our prospects, when we're thinking about what kind of a world uh, we're going into, what kind of a future we're making for ourselves, like what are we actually doing as thinkers, um, it doesn't look so good for some of us in the institutional matrix that currently exists. And I think it's becoming that way for more <coughs> and more people, and uh, a good example of that is the fact that you have people who go into some kind of a non-profit oriented field such as philosophy or poetry you know the humanities in general they go into it not for money but because they love the field itself and they want to be able to be immersed in it and um, the reason that you get to take those kind of classes as an elective along the way to your nba or you know your law track whatever it is that you're doing the reason is because we've always, I don't know, for a couple of thousand years, had this idea that the children of the elite somehow benefit from spending time with people like us. People who are just passionate about the humanities and who do it because we honestly want to do this more than anything else. My cat's meowing a lot. I got to check. Yeah, <laughs> He's good. He's just... Why is he meowing?
2: though? Why is he... yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let's take his harness off. Yeah. need to it I think his harness got twisted and he's just being weird. like, get it off me. This is Ryan Gosling, everybody. Not the <laughs> actor, obviously, but the cat.
2: The, uh, <laughs> clear.
1: Retroactively, Ryan Gosling, the actor, will always be compared to the cat. because. Has
2: anyone ever seen the two of them in the same room, though? Has anybody ever
1: seen the two of them in the same room, though, ask
2: asks Anne. No.
1: Shouldn't it be Ryan Catling? <laughs> Ryan Catling, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Gosling is a baby goose. So what's this thread I was just carrying? Um, The idea that you go into this field because you love it. And there has always been this idea that there is a privilege that comes from getting to spend time with someone who's just passionate about something that's not fully instrumentalized towards a profit or power motive. That there is a value in itself in that that experience. But the problem is for many of us, when we look, we see Oh, look at this poetry professor. Look at this philosophy professor. Look at this history professor teaching the same class several times per week for years and years and years, right? I know I know one person who teaches six English classes in the same day. That is the definition of soul sucking. <laughs> that is the definition of... I mean, well, it really, what it seems like is the industrialization of <clears throat> exactly what of the humanities, and so the humanities are supposed to be the one field that is not instrumentalized, and here you have it being more instrumentalized than ever. And of course, you still have wonderful experiences with teachers and professors, and we all do, or we would have never discovered the life of the mind, because obviously that doesn't just fall out of the sky. We owe this to people we met along the way, but those people we met along the way are usually in between a rock and a hard uh, spot, and so. There are various experiments in leaving the institutions, and most of them turn to doing everything off of YouTube or doing everything through a podcast. Um, And I do think that there's something of value to creating spaces that are dedicated to texts where we meet not just on demand whenever we want to, but routinely for some stretch of time that we're all committed to so that It's not just me thinking about this thing when I want to, but I also am kind of plugged into a community of other people who are doing so, and maybe I have someone else to do that with. And so uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about the McLuhan Institute and what Andrew is doing here is that he's doing that. He's doing his own experiments with that. But my experiment with Theory Underground, uh, it comes down to taking what I see to be some of the most negative tendencies of the attention economy and trying to either counter them for my own sake or for other sakes um or harness them and so countering tendencies versus harnessing tendencies is something that i think about right so it's like if if uh like harnessing a tendency for instance might look like well everything's gamified i am driven by the gamification of Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, like I want to get likes, I want to get follows, right? Is there a way to, instead of just countering that with like, say, getting rid of your phone or something, is there a way to harness that to kind of say, oh, I already have this weird subjective formation within myself that makes me need this thing? Is there a way that I can hack that? And so an example off the top of my head is that we've experimented with, at Theory Underground, the idea of the exegetical readings and time-lapse readings so an exegetical reading is when you read something out loud and talk about it and we have a rule where you you're supposed to read 70 percent of the time talk about it 30 percent of the time on average so that it doesn't just become oh we're just talking again like you know podcasts usually do but instead no we're doing something different here we're letting the text speak for itself a lot more before we try to contextualize it or problematize it or or, or put it in our own words, which is the main point of <coughs> reading. working with various interpretive approaches. And, uh, and reading a text like that, though, doesn't work on the first reading, right? It works on the preferably second or third reading, like you want to have digesting, you want to have gotten the lay of the land in the text. You don't just open a book and start reading something you've never read before and then stop every time you have a thought pop into your head and then you comment on that because that is already YouTube, that is already uh, Twitch, that is already what streamers do. They play a YouTube video that they've never seen before and they pause it every time they have a thought. Usually it's some kind of a cheap gotcha and it doesn't make them better. And when I was doing Twitch or when I was doing YouTube uh, full time, It didn't make me better. I was hoping that this would, in a sort of sense, make me better. But what what I was finding is that not only does the medium change the message, or actually render the message irrelevant, but the medium was also changing the messenger. Me. I felt like I was becoming Twitchified as a Twitch streamer. Uh, For those who don't know, you've probably seen live streamers on YouTube or something, but if you've not actually been on Twitch, it's a little bit different because you can't go back to the beginning of the, the live stream mm. it's just you come in on the middle of something and then you got to figure it out and you're just there in that space which means that the streamer who's doing twitch streaming is constantly assuming an audience of people who've just tuned in which means that they can never really get anywhere right like they 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 always kind of have to stay at base camp to use the metaphor uh peter sloderdijk develops or you must change your life he uses this metaphor of people at the base camp and then people who are climbing the mountain. And of course, like your family and friends support you from the base camp as you go and you climb the mountain and then they cheer for you or or they can come help you or something like that. And he says, we live in a society today where there's a lot of people who just want to have a comfortable base camp and they don't want to achieve things. They don't want to pursue excellence, right? Well, mastery, mastery, right. Twitch and becoming Twitchified it felt like, oh, what I'm what I'm here to do is to create a comfortable base camp for people. It's not so that they learn how to read for themselves, that they learn how to interpret for themselves, that they learn how to write or uh, learn different languages or or that they become literate across the fields of philosophy, the humanities and uh, social sciences. No, we, we we find our favorite thinker, hook our wagon to them and then go in circles at that at base camp forever. Right. And I felt like that was what was happening to me. I felt like that's what I was enabling in my audience. And I did not like that. And I wanted to do something different. And so Theory Underground counters that in a variety of ways. And we can get into those more later. And people can always uh, ask me more questions about those things. But for now, I just want to say a few things about media theory and critique. And so first, I want to say that my entry into everything was through philosophy and political philosophy specifically. Um, I was mainly just interested in philosophy and I was kind of a, I would say sort of a utopian hippie socialist of a sort. You know, I didn't really have it. I I don't know. I thought I saw Occupy from afar and thought that looks cool, but I didn't really participate. Uh, but it did get me thinking and it got me thinking maybe I want to look more into these things. And so Uh, When I started studying philosophy as a non-traditional student, I'd spent a decade in the workforce. i start going to college and I'm I'm finding out out about philosophy. I discovered that there's this thing called philosophy of technology. And so I started looking into philosophy of technology. And I was confused because, you know, I I loved Heidegger's, the question concerning technology. I thought that that was a deep and profound um sort of perspective on the situation that I'd never really thought about. Not just that he doesn't just look at kinds of technology and and, and and the different effects that different technologies have on us or the world or the mediation between us. But he was also interested in the the sort of general tendency of the mode of revealing that we take on when we live in a fully technolog- five, technologized society and so what i mean by that is like a mode of revealing is to say like you could be a poet writing about oh you know the, the the beauty of the tree with the dew on its leaves and the the wind in its branches or something you know i'm obviously not a poet <laughs> that was beautiful. Dude. thank you <laughs> And but you take a relation to the thing or the tree in a way that is not purely instrumentalized you're not thinking about its Uh, market value. You're not thinking about its cellulose, um, or its reduction to cellulose on the market. Um, Headers point is that it doesn't matter. At a certain level, the phone you're using, the writing pad you're using, the food you're ordering, the coffee you're drinking, all of it is challenging forth nature as a standing reserve that is on call to satisfy your desires. And so here you are like, part of what it's functioning now to do all of these different things that you're using to write and think. It's helping you be like, well, I'm special because I'm not part of that system of expropriation. Um, or, or if I am, it's accidental, but no, I'm poetizing being, right? Well, the point is, is like, yeah, but the, the default mode of revealing that we are all in is still the reduction of all of these things to their market value, to their uh, their basis as material resources. And then of course there's like the hinge point in that essay where he says that at that moment when we find ourselves masters and possessors of nature, you know, which was the term that Rene Descartes had used in his discourse on method. Like that's the goal is that, you know, through unleashing science, we'll be able to become the masters and possessors of nature. At that very point we discover kind of behind our backs, so to speak, We've become reduced to human resources, put on call for a a world system of expropriation and exploitation, right? Um, Which is like, you know, he's not a Marxist, but this is kind of getting at something that obviously Marxists are interested in as well. Well, I was blown away by the question concerning technology, and so I wanted to get more into philosophy of technology and what i discovered was that um, amazing professors like uh don Ide or andrew Feenberg are uh they're great professors they write important works they get published in important journals but it doesn't feel like it's it's there for me like what's missing i was like, confused what is missing and i'll just use an example with each of them, with Don Eide, he's basically like, he's got like this sort of Marcuse-based perspective on the situation. And to say it's Marcuse-based is to say it's Freudian, Marxist, Heideggerian, some kind of a fusion of those things. I have my questions about that fusion. I don't think it's my preferred synthesis of those thinkers, but I think Marcuse is interesting for for taking that on. And Feinberg had studied under him. And uh, what he says is that the solution is democracy. So, just put some more democracy on it. Like the real problem with technology today is that it's runaway capitalism. And so, what we just need is a stronger uh, managerial state that is going to rein it in, so to speak. And of course, democracy, I like the idea of the uh, consent of the governed being represented in the decisions that get made. I like the idea of, or the will of the governed. I, lo- I love these ideas. Uh, But functionally, the way that democracy tends to work, it kind of makes me feel despair because I don't see any real hope in it. When I think, like, I'm sorry, I don't don't, don't look at Congress and think, yeah, these are a bunch of people who are gonna be able to make some decisions to really rein in the technological developments that are running amok, right? First of all, they're all, all already bought out by the, uh, the very corporations that are benefiting from turning children into neurotic, anxious, depressed, uh, hyper-distracted, uh, what's the word? Yeah, neurotics. I don't know. I'm just repeating myself, but you know what the situation is because you feel it being done to yourself as well. And so the fact that that's being done to children, um, and it's being done for profit without any real, um, uh thought going towards oh how's this going to backfire that's troublesome right i don't think democracy or the currently existing political situation is necessarily going to be helpful in this regard and so i go to someone like don Ide and what do i find here i find that he is a systematizer he likes to classify things right He he likes to classify different kinds of technology he says heidegger just talks about technology. Like it's one thing, but actually there's different kinds of technology and they have different kinds of functions. And so that's kind of what he does. And I think it's interesting, but it's, but I'm like, well, where's, where's the real thing that I'm looking for here? And all of it kind of brought me to Marshall McLuhan way too late, (laughs) way too late, um, way too too late for all the conferences that I went to that were related to philosophy of technology. That's for sure. And what McLuhan does is he does, he's not just focused on the technologies that we make and he's not just interested in what those help us do on the world. He's interested in how they mediate our relationship with ourselves, one another and the world. And when we say mediate, media mediates is to say that we do not have direct, direct access to the things themselves you know, outside of any question about transcendental subjectivity and whether the categories of our mind are able to get to the things themselves or not, the Kantian problems of philosophy. No, there's just the fundamental thing, which is that I go about my day mostly, usually thinking about the things that are not immediately present to me. And those things were re-presented to me, mediated through devices and these different devices and the different ways that they mediate this stuff, it changes. How I see the world, how I see myself, how I think, how I act, how I interpret, how I perceive. And so that seems pretty important. That seems like probably one of the most fundamental fields of the humanities that should be a prerequisite to any meddling in science or nature. But instead, it's just marginalized off into a random town in Canada. (laughs) Right? And so I have a little thing that I'd like to read that that I wrote for... um, The Marshall McLuhan biography at the end, or sorry, bio, not biography, bio, at the end of Underground Theory, the volume that we just published on the 2nd of September, 2023. It says, Marshall McLuhan, July 21st, 1911 to December 31st, 1980, was a Canadian philosopher whose work is among the cornerstones of the study of media theory. McLuhan coined the expression, the medium is the message in the first chapter in his understanding media, the extensions of man and the term global village. He predicted the World Wide Web almost 30 years before it was invented. He was a fixture in media discourse in the late 1960s, though his influence began to wane in the early 1970s. In the years following his death, he continued to be a controversial figure in academic circles. However, with the arrival of the internet and the World Wide Web, interest was renewed in his work and perspectives, especially in one very niche corner of the internet on an obscure but innovative platform called Theory Underground, where a small (laughs) cohort of underground researchers study critical media theory, CMT. In this circle, McLuhan is treated like Gandhi or Socrates or something. (laughs) Though some of the CMT cohort has certain disagreements with this or that idea, They all agree that we are more or less living in a world that cannot be understood without Marshall's work. All of this author bio was taken from the Wikipedia page, except for the part about Theory Underground and the CMT cohort, which was written by David McCair, one of the cohort's instructors. Huge thanks to Michael McLuhan for getting us an unpublished letter from the McLuhan archive and a huge thanks as well to Andrew McLuhan for visiting our cohort and doing the important work that he does to keep the work Of his father Eric and a grandfather Marshall alive in the 21st century and so really I just copied the Wikipedia pasted it deleted like a couple of random (laughs) sentences and then I just you know inserted ourselves there at the end of it because from where I stand when I look at theory tube I don't see the McLuhan people or Mm -hmm. and the thing is we're not McLuhan Mm -hmm. Knights in the sense that it's like well I I mean I'm, I'm a I I read Marx and Heidegger and Nietzsche and Aristotle and Plato. I learned from them. I consider them to be masters in a sort of way. Like my ideal heaven would be eternity getting to have conversations with these people, you know what I mean? And McLuhan is one of them. And for Michael Downs, who's also here in the chat, McLuhan is one of them. And instead, he's treated like a fad that went away in the 1970s, as you see that in that article. you can tell that article is written by a hipster. All that person cared about was his popularity. It was big then and then it waned and then it became controversial. Well, that tells us nothing. It tells us nothing of his work. And uh, what I'll say is that in the world of media theory, he is the Sigmund Freud. In the world of media theory, he is the Karl Marx. He is the Darwin, right? Like this is this is something we take very seriously and we'll go to bat um, for it. We're coming to a city near you if you want to fight us on this. <laughs> bring it on. But um, no, anyway, so what does the critique bring? For me, the most important thing is that the media, the mediums, to pluralize it. And I'm not supposed to say mediums, I'm supposed to say media, but everyone associates that with the media, which is Chomsky's domain or whatever. Not I don't I, I say Mediums, just to be clear what I mean. Working class people get it. And so anyway, the idea is that mediums do not exist in a void, right? They do not just come down from the sky or grow off of trees. They come out of our interfacing with technologies that do not just come out of nowhere, but usually come about because of either the interests of power or profit or both, because those two things often go together. (coughs) And so then the question is, what can the world of critical theory offer to media theory? And then the other question is vice versa. What can the world of media theory give critical theory? And I think uh, there is this this thread um, of a sort of maybe this hint of somewhere, a starting point, if you will, in the um, understanding media, which was McLuhan's, Marshall's, Uh, one of, I mean, his most popular work, right? It's sort of his magnum opus. Uh, And that is his engagement with Marx. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Marshall believes that where Marxists get it wrong is that they think that base determines superstructure. And so what is base and superstructure? Base is the productive relations and the means of production in society. That is how things are made, how things get from point A to point B, the kinds of stuff we have to go and do with our toil on a daily basis to make the world go round. The productive base of society determines the parameters within which all of the cultural stuff unfolds. And so the cultural stuff is being called superstructure, which is to say, like, it's it's operating within those parameters established by the base. Marshall says multiple times, and of course, if you do a word search for Marx, he, 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 he says the name Marx like seven times. And I think four of those times are dealing with the Marx Brothers. So <laughs> it, I'm, I'm overstating my case. Not to, coincidentally. It's yeah. not coincidentally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm overstating my case to say, like, this is the point of understanding media. I'm not saying that that is what he was thinking but there is this opportunity for a dialogue between critical theory and understanding media because i do believe that this idea of the power of the superstructure um, being underestimated by marx and marxists is something that is thought about by others as well bromsky althusser lukacs to name a few now of course they still don't they don't lose the importance of the base But they, because they're surrounded by dogmatic worldview Marxists who think in a very simplistic way, oh, it's all base superstructure, not important at all. Because they are dealing with people like that, they kind of have to go, okay, guys, you're not thinking very dialectically about this. Obviously, there's a dialectical sort of back and forth between base and superstructure. But to try to correct that within Marxism, which as a tradition has really doubled down on the side of base and thinking of things in such a way, I don't think is enough. I think you actually need a radical outsider from that discourse. And McLuhan was absolutely a radical outsider in every discourse. He seemed to insert himself into, right? He intervenes in every field that he is participating in because as a sort of synthetic thinker who is kind of trying not to do theory per se, he was bringing his unique way of seeing things, which I would still call it is a theory, at least at the implicit level. He was bringing that um, to whatever he he was um, analyzing, studying, interpreting. And I guess I'll just use kind one really example of a way that a sort of Marxist, a sort of a sort of post Marxist or, or sort of neo Marxist uh, reading of something that relates to um, McLuhan and media theory would be Moish Pastone's time, labor and social domination. Uh, in this section, I think it's chapter five, the section on abstract time. He stopped, he's talking about um, how there's a, there's a, there's a time that is unique to capitalism. And we obviously have various ways of talking about that. There's traditional time versus modern time. There is rural time versus city time. And he's using different theorists. He's saying, well, this theorist thinks it's that and this other theorist thinks it's that Um, there's people who think about uh, variable time versus fixed time. I I think this is very interesting because most cultures, most humans, for the majority of history, obviously have culturally unique ways of thinking about time or being in time. But one thing that is uh, true across the board outside of modernity is variable time. Right which means it's not super precise. Every hour is not the same length, right? The hour that is the time of day that we take siesta is a different kind of hour than the time of day that we are working, right? And it might be longer. If you were going to be very strict, it's like, well, it seems like it's approximately an hour and a half by my watch. But it's approximately on average because it actually it's variable. It's it's relative to the culture and the things that the people care about and the kinds of ways that they actually live their lives and the way that they actually have to engage with nature. Okay, the parameters set by nature as opposed to the parameters set by capital within the modern city. And so um, it's a fascinating section. Uh, I meant to wake up at six this morning and like uh, do a line by line analysis and then turn that all into a couple of main points. And then I was gonna sit here and read quotes and do it. And I was gonna really focus on this, but I decided I wanted to do this more introductory thing anyway. So what, what we're doing is what I decided to do anyway, because I slept in. And I slept in because I discovered a new medium. And that is the weighted blanket. So we were using the weighted blanket that uh, Amen here offered us and I've never slept under something like that, but it made me think that maybe my entire life I've not been sleeping very good because I was afraid I would float away from the bed. Because like when you have a weighted blanket on you, you're like, oh, like there's this weird sort of sense that I'm not going anywhere. This is where I belong. That's very interesting. I've never slept with one, and so anyway, I was like three hours late getting up. And but what I will say, we also,
2: needed it also. We did
1: need it, man. And we've been we've been going to bed at like. Midnight or 10 one, to
2: midnight and
1: getting up every morning at five, to, five six to six for this tour. But what I'll say about the time labor social domination section, chapter five, abstract time, read it yourself. You'll love it, I promise. Um, is that he debunks the idea that the reason uh we experience linear progressive uh time in this sort of uh Abstract way where it's not related to events and it's not cyclical like traditional time. The reason we experience that that way is because of the invention of the clock. It's the invention of the clock that made it so we could count fixed time. Um, And so what he attempts to do is to debunk that idea because he says, look, we had the means. Technologically, the means were already there. If we really wanted to count fixed time before modernity, we would have. But instead, it was because church was the major organ of power outside of the monarchy. The church bells were able to pretty much do everything needed in any uh, uh, populace, right, the, or any metropolis. He uses this example of a Chinese clock invented in like the 13th century or something like that, like 80. Um, so it, it, it goes back before the time of modernity for sure, where uh, the some Chinese inventor had made a clock that counts fixed time. But it was a novelty item and it wasn't the standard and it wasn't being used by Chinese people. It was just a novelty. Why was it just a novelty? They didn't need to keep time in this super specific, uh, way that lets you cut up every minute into seconds that makes it so you can refine and and, and, and calculate everything in, in the most uh, segmented and separated abstract way that is removed from human collectivity, that is removed from cyclical life patterns that live on a sort of week to two week basis or monthly or annual basis. Um, so the idea is it's not that the clock invented this kind of time. It's that the needs of capital, which were then becoming freed from the church and freed from the state, the needs of capital required a clock like this, a time like this. And it's interesting, it's useful, I think, because it, it's a, it's good to start thinking about the ways that the media, the mediums that we use, not just impact us, but also like where do they come from and functionally what are they doing, not just to us, but also to make it so that this stage of society where we see no real future, and we kind of think of ourselves as being at the end of history, how, does, how do these things, reproduce that? What is their role in the reproduction of that? Right? What does that kind of time do in the reproduction of our sense of individuality? And everyone's got to be in it for themselves at everyone else's expense. Um, These are the kinds of questions that I think the word critical adds to media theory. And so when I say that I am a part of a CMT or critical media theory research cohort, I think that there is a lot of work to be done um, between these two worlds, the critical theory world and the media theory world. And I think that us being here in the flesh is actually a good start for hopefully something that will unfold slowly and beautifully over the next hundreds of years, right? And I think it will be hundreds of years because I think the relevance is only going to grow, it will not go away. Um, Two proto CMT insights, I think that get a lot of people um, thinking, well, maybe technology is not what I've always thought it is. On the one hand, it's, oh, there's a gun in the house that changes the dynamic. Obviously, in the United States, the Second Amendment people, like you know, a lot of them in my family, um, they say, well, it's, it's, the gun didn't kill a person, a person killed a person. It's like, yeah, but that's not that's never what a person's talking about when they have a problem with a gun just being on standby in a house. The point is, is that when you put this piece of technology in there, how does it actually mediate the relations? Not just between the people in the moment, but how does it actually change the horizon of possibilities? Mm -hmm. Because we are virtually purposive beings, purposive, meaning that like we orient ourselves towards the future, right? We, We make decisions, we have to think about the different possibilities, and if someone just whips out a gun and puts it on the table while you're talking, that changes the dynamic. And people and a lot of liberals in the United States have a basic gut sense that there is something there to in that moment. There's something going on. Uh, Another example is breaking up by text messaging. There is no general etiquette in the in the world today about how we should act with one another, how to have friends, how to date. There's no general etiquette. People don't write books about etiquette. It's usually self-help but it's not how to how ought one to be around among others and how should we use our new devices yeah. it's we don't really have that in the victorian era it's like oh you use this spoon for that and you use this fork for that and it's all very there's a there's a right way to do everything there's a lot of wrong ways to do things social norms yeah. there's not a lot of social norms but we all know it's messed up to just break up with somebody through text message why right because there's something different about that way of communicating. It is different and we don't fully understand why or how it's different yet. We just know in our gut that there's a problem here. In the same way that the gun changes the dynamic on the table, Sherry Turkle and reclaiming conversation cites studies that show that putting a phone on the table during a conversation also changes the way that the conversation will unfold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It makes other people want to pick up their phone. It makes them, less able to really take seriously and think about what's being said
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that means that putting your phone off the table can actually at a subliminal level sign a sort of commitment or stake in the conversation space mm-hmm. right
2: and the potential sorry the potential for the distraction keeps the conversation shallow because yes. why get into anything deeper when someone's gonna tune out exactly to
1: <laughs> exactly yeah, well, and so I'm just saying that these are proto-media theory insights. I say proto in the sense that like, they they could be left at the level of, oh, you just acknowledge that it makes things different and then we move on with our lives. Or we use these kind of insights to start to trace out the contours of an actually existing field of knowledge and consciousness and experience that we all live in that we want to become better oriented in and actually kind of through becoming uh, better acquainted with how it all works, gain some kind of relative freedom, some kind of relative autonomy. And I think that's where Marshall McLuhan and Martin Heidegger both agree. Um, in the uh, question concerning technology, Heidegger says it as it's about gaining, it's not about breaking free or living, living away from devices or living without technology, but it's, it's about through through basically living the exam life, Gaining a relative uh, freedom to live with them. And so I think that's what we're all here to do. And critical media theory is something I'm very excited about. And that's my talk. So thank you for having me. And uh, yeah. Uh, just, uh, yeah,
2: just clap. Just please clap. <laughs> just just do it. I don't know someone. how to end this thing.
1: I don't have a witty little ending point. But um, what I will say then is that uh, the way this is going to go is Anne will present and then. If Nance has some thoughts, uh, he's a, he's the other tour crew person who couldn't make it into Canada because he doesn't have his passport. Uh, but he is joining us remotely. Um, Nance, is there any chance that it it matters if you go next or after Anne? Does it matter to you? Because he's like commuting and so. If could, he went next,
2: I could make. run
1: a little back. I'm
3: not. Quick. I'm unsure if the Wi-Fi is going to support it at all. Like I've been dropping
1: the whole time. Mm. Okay. Um. You should, you should go for it. Nance, how about you just uh, you. say, with, Nance, how about you just say right now, uh, like one to three minutes worth of uh, kind of what you wanted to talk about, and kind of make a promise to talk about it in the future, uh, once, once we're able to kind of come back to the channel and do it after the fact, and that way... Um, Anne has an opportunity to run to the bathroom, which she's doing right now. Andrew's escorting her. But yeah, just for the people watching this in the future, as well as those of us who are here right now, um, maybe just share a little bit about what you wanted to talk about. And that'll also give us a chance to kind of assess your, the strength of your connection.
3: all right, can you uh, hear me? I hope you can hear me. I'm on a train in upstate New York right now. And that's actually pretty interesting. I've been thinking about for the last 45 minutes, I've been trying to uh, get a Zoom call to work on a train um, on the Wi-Fi that was provided by the train. And and that's interesting, right? Because it's like I'm I'm traveling and I'm kind of answering to To the call of what you could recognize as business, even though this isn't really a business endeavor, I guess it would still fit into that category. Um, But like on airplanes, people are like, oh, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta get this flight. Give me the red eye, you know, get there as fast as possible. Um, And I don't know, I I am a bit frazzled right now from running up and down this train, um, but that seems interesting to me. Um, I'm on a train, it's taking me like 18 hours to to go somewhere that probably would have been i don't know a four or a five hour flight um and i'm still trying to participate in this endeavor that um i mean it's creative it's educational it's uh, it's communal in a way it's ultimately I'm, I'm trying to communicate but um i am at the uh at the mercy of uh the infrastructure that we have. And that itself is an interesting question from a critical media uh, theory perspective. Um, what, I, what I've been writing all morning um, or, or trying to write all morning through my lack of sleep, um, I, I really wanted to focus on this idea that I guess dawned on uh, Dave and I the other day, we were at a uh, state park. And they had some um, some information, some public information signs, and, and it was very, very well-written prose. Um, and it was just kind of like the explicit message of, of this well-crafted um, copy that was on these signs was, hey, everybody, look at where your tax dollars are going. Um, celebrate our, uh, our abundance. Uh, it was it almost like trying to convince people that we still have the comments, um, but it was really well done. Uh, and along with that, there there was um, it seemed that there was an implicit PMC self-awareness where the writer of these things was, you know, artfully crafting um, this product that, that he could sell. And in the selling of his product, he was also selling himself or, or their self um, and ensuring their own first. Earth- <laughs> oh, there we go. PMC, segment of society. Hello. Did I think I dropped? No, you're all right.
1: Oh, you, no. you are okay. It, just so you know, it... Oh it all came through up until like a point when it just barely got a little clunky but it's okay.
3: Yeah, it's okay, right? We're critical of, of mediums here, right? That's that's the whole point. We're demonstrating breakdowns. Um but so having this this, you know, really really cool, really emergent experience with um with copywriting um was really cool and then dave and i started doing our cynical thing and and we started talking about um like the death of copywriting as as a medium and as a thing And, and people don't really interact with that type of copy anymore advertising copy all our advertise all our advertisements um are just memes or they're just people's body parts with a one large word written across that says you know product um like the 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 art of advertising, which is a weird thing to say. Um, what did I say the other day? Even even our 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 bullshit um, has become even more bullshit nowadays. With just with how everything is, has just become so senseless and so meaningless and and just so like postmodern. Um, and that's a topic that. It's really interesting to me and uh and I wanted to talk about that and kind of tie it into um my own cynical position on all of this. That like I I think uh yeah, I I think we might be in a position um that that something you know catastrophic has to happen before any, any type of change can happen. Uh and I and I hope that's not the case. Um, but it sure does feel that way sometimes.
1: <coughs> is, it, is that it? Oh, is that it? Yeah, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, you just gotta say. Thank you. And then, and then we'll all know <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. Thank you. Um, and so then, um, I, I guess I didn't really introduce Nance, but, uh, Nance is one of the most, uh, avid supporters of Theory Underground has been here since before day one has taken all the Theory Underground courses, um, and has just engaged uh, with me on a level that makes me better. And so I really appreciate it, and I think you're awesome, man. And, and we wish you could be here in the flesh. Um, I was gonna say a thing about this idea of the f- being in in the flesh, um, and that is that w- what the internet calls it the meat space, <clears throat> and it's meat spelled with a, an a, right? M e a t, because uh, our our physical bodies are here in the flesh, but it's also the meat space, like m e e t. Yeah, of course we meet online, but like maybe. You can't really meet without the meat. I uh, I to play on that idea. Yeah, I like
4: that. <laughs>
1: anyway, all right. Well, now I'm going to introduce uh, a little nepotism here. And that is uh, my wife, uh, <laughs> wife. Ann Spellgrove Uh She graduated from Boise State University with a bachelor's <coughs> in social science, is returning there to study all kinds of crazy awesome things that she might tie into her actual talk. But the point is, is that she's been on a gap year here for like a year and a half uh during which we got married but we also traveled the world we went to europe to like seven countries uh we lived in mexico for five months we've been now obviously we're doing this national tour so we we are all over the place and we're having a great time doing it but Anne has been one of the uh co-researchers at 300 Underground t- two times uh first with the idea of the university which we co-taught with our uh colleague and friend brian weeks and then Uh, She's currently teaching critical media theory with me, and um, that cohort's been absolutely wonderful. And she brings to the table a sort of uh, social science perspective, um, as well as um, what she'll be talking about today, which is some of these more sort of popular works on uh, living with devices and others in a very technological modern world. Um, So today she will be talking about two very important and interrelated concepts, Solitude and Solicitude. Please put your hands together for Anne Snellgrove McCurker. Can people turn their cameras on? They can, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna they should, it, yeah. Dave, are real?
0: This is an international book tour. I don't it, know if you recall she, that in, I in, Yeah, we're in Canada it.
2: right it's now, so it's hard hard. So it is oh, international. Honestly,
0: it's not so the 53rd state, state
2: people. Um, first of all, you're all allowed to turn your cameras on if you'd like. Um, I don't know what you're doing. If you're not wearing clothes or pants, like live your best life, but it is nice to see people's faces. But if not, like I said, you do do you, um, (laughs) Nance is on a train right now, which is kind of a cool background when you're not chopping in and out. Um, but yes. So thank you for that introduction. Um, I think that's kind of what you need to know about me and what I bring to the table, um, here in this discussion. Um, Yeah, so I really first wanted to start off by talking about the critical media theory research cohort that we have going on at Theory Underground right now. Uh, We meet once a month where we discuss one and more kind of philosophical text. And then on the other side, we discuss a bit more of a maybe popular science, social science, or more accessible uh, book as opposed to like pure, hard, difficult theory. and this cohort started back this summer. Um, we go once a month, and our very first texts were uh, some Marshall McLuhan, and then "Amusing Ourselves to Death" by Neil Postman, kind of a McLuhan influence look into the development of the television as a medium during the 80s. Um, I think I want to kind of touch on something that Dave had said earlier which is that Theory Underground is a critical media experiment. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that it was, we didn't really have this conception of Theory Underground being a critical media experiment until we really started developing the critical media theory course. Um, I think that's when we, to my understanding, realized that what we're doing here, not only what Theory Underground is, but what we fundamentally care about within Theory Underground, is media theory and critical media theory um, as an experiment, and I think that you know media theory and critical media theory go hand in hand with underground education, underground little experiments, underground or smaller institutions such as the McLuhan Institute or uh, Cadell Last's Philosophy Portal. He's a friend of of theory underground. Um, and I think those are. Important to the critical media theory dialogue because we are, um, you know, we have lots of literature to to back this up. But also, I think just anyone living in the in the modern times can kind of see the crisis of technology and the crisis of humanity that we're all tuned into at some level. Uh, You know, neoliberalized, instrumentalized education on the one hand where you know education and reading and understanding theory gets reduced and pushed to the side so we all can learn some job skills and go work for the rest of our lives for 40 plus hours a week to barely scrape by. We have that. On the other hand, I think we see, especially in young people, um, I'm probably one of, the, one of the younger representatives here in Theory Underground. Um, I got my first iPad when I was 11 years old. Got a social media, uh, Instagram account back uh, in like seventh grade, wow. so I was yeah twelve or thirteen, and I've been on these platforms for like the most crucial developmental years of my life, and so I have this like very deep personal experience of how this has impacted my life. I've seen the ways it's impacted my peers and relationships and my education. And then people of all generations, I think, are starting to see Hmm, maybe two-year-olds shouldn't be on iPads. Maybe five-year-olds shouldn't be influencers. Um, <clears throat> so that's another crisis. And within that, um, something that Sherry Turkle talks about in the book that David just mentioned, uh, Reclaiming Conversation. It was uh, the book that we kind of discussed in our second month of the Critical Media Theory course is this crisis in empathy that is emerging, especially among children, um, because we, as a society, we just assume, oh, it's it's easy, it takes the burden off of parents, and there's some truth in that, and, you know, the time-energy issue of parents not having the time or energy to be there and be present for their kids, it's, well, th- th- there's YouTube, there's TV, there's iPads, let's put that in front of them. Um, but what, you know, teachers have reported, what studies are showing, what we're seeing is that kids especially are having a harder time building and developing empathy because they are not having you know face-to-face play dates as much so they are not getting the chance to develop communication and, and understand how their words impact other people because on the one hand they're just not spending as much time with kids you know i think one of the really powerful anecdotes that turkle writes about is Um, she's at a park, a playground, and there was a kid off to the side under a tree on his iPad. So he's there in this physical space with other kids and the potential to play with them, but instead he's still seemingly playing with other children, but it's not that like very intimate kind of human face-to-face meet and meet up um, because of the screen, because of the technology. Um, So on the one hand, there's, there's not this capacity to develop empathy and be with others. And on the other hand, kids don't have as much alone time. Um, We don't have as much time to just be with ourselves, for young children to use their imagination for play, for teenagers to just sit with, like, the weird teen angst. We're constantly able to distract ourselves from it by checking Instagram, checking TikTok, checking Twitter, uh, tuning into YouTube stream. Um, And that is a problem. Like, I think we can say there's an issue there. Obviously, there's good things that come from it, but there's a lot of negative unforeseen consequences that we are just now developing and starting to see um, emerging. And so that is kind of the, the cultural context that we, Dave and I especially, came, came to realize that we said we need to tackle this issue in Theory Underground. Um, so this is, I think, like one of, one of the first five courses that have been offered at Theory Underground alongside um, the idea of the university and the, you know, professional managerial class, some of these foundational ideas that Theory Underground builds itself upon. So the Critical Media Theory course, um, like I had kind of mentioned, the, the purpose of this course is to combine theory and philosophy with pop popular or more approachable social science or more practical social science, you can say. And we see a lot of self-help books coming out nowadays. We see a lot of critiques of technology, critiques of social media um, that are all fine and dandy and I'm sure helping a lot of people. But what we came to realize is, you know, that that self-help and trying to take action to change the situation and to help yourself and to help your own relationship with technology will be aided by and will probably be stronger and more successful by having a theoretical basis in the field. And so as Dave mentioned, you know, Marshall McLuhan is kind of, he's our our Socrates or our Plato or our Marx of the field of media theory. Um, And because of that, I just like wanna say, I'm really honored to be here in this space to be meeting Andrew. Um, I really like, this is, it's a beautiful, Kind of early fall day here in Canada. We're in this awesome kind of rustic barn surrounded by books, surrounded by good people in the meat space. And it's really <laughs> awesome. And I'm so honored to the be meat here. Experience. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so... Anyways. Solitude. Yeah, solitude and And so that's kind of what our critical media theory course is doing, is attempting to do. The reason we have spaced it out as opposed to having, you know, a class every week or a class every other week. Uh, we have the class once a month where we, Dave and I each give a li- lecture. Dave focusing more on the philosophical text, me focusing on the kind of more popular science or social science text. So we've read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, um, Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. This month, we just like literally last weekend, we explored <laughs> uh, you're thinking of selfie with a camera, I love it. Um, we explored "Manufacturing Consent" by Noam Chomsky, a pretty foundational sociological text. We'll be going to "Hate Inc." by Matt Taibbi, uh, "Digital Minimalism" by Cal Newport. Think books like that, and so I uh, give the lectures and kind of the, the interpretation on those. But the the cool part of our cohort, because it's so small, it's a research cohort, and so we have a lot of dialogue. We have a lot of conversations. Um, and one of the kind of found really important ideas that have emerged or talking points that have emerged from reading Sherry Turkle, as well as from having this, uh, McLuhan basis of understanding the media or mediums as its own kind of can of worms rather than just the content coming from a media is the idea of solitude and solicitude. and so, yeah, in in response to this problem that we see that Sherry Trickle highlights and has a lot of anecdotes um, and research studies for, you know, um, kids not being able to develop empathy as well, people just in general spending less time with others and spending less times less time with themselves. She puts forth this idea of the virtuous circle being this relationship between solitude and solicitude. She also in her book, she she describes it as having like in your life, one chair, two chairs and three chairs. So one chair being for solitude. I think this was in relation to uh, Thoreau and the way that his house was set up out in the woods. He had one chair for himself, two chairs for like immediate solicitude with another person, three chairs for, for more people for kind of society. And in our course, we're specifically focusing on solitude and solicitude um, as a sort of a maelstrom strategy, which is something that uh, before our course started, we were lucky enough to have Andrew join us and talk to us about this idea of maelstrom strategies, which maybe you can touch on when you come up here. Um, but solitude and solicitude as a as a response, as something that we can take claim to, that we can take charge of, In an attention economy that is constantly trying to take our time and attention and energy away from us by the algorithms and the addictiveness of these technologies. Um, And so, what are solitude and solicitude? Solitude is um, genuine time with oneself, away from having other ideas or messages coming into you. It's just time with yourself as an individual time to think your own thoughts i think today with we have a lot of people like they go home they're done with work they have that me time but me time is not actual me time it's time to scroll time to be constantly getting an an influx of information garbage time (laughs) as as dave develops um in kind of the theory got
1: that from Amy.
2: Which, yeah, Eamon, actually, who's here with us, that was his, he coined that term um, in relation to time, energy, and time energy theory. And so it's it's garbage time. It's time where, yeah, you're you're distracted from yourself. And why why that is detrimental is because you don't have the time to be with yourself, to sit with your emotions, to understand them, But more importantly, you're kind of dehumanizing yourself in a sense that you, because you're not engaging in any sort of dialogue with yourself or with your with your mind and with your thoughts, that ability to build empathy, to have empathy, to see others um, for who they are is not as strong because you don't even have that within yourself. And so solitude, yeah, is that genuine uninterrupted, uh, time with yourself and some strategies that we have sort of developed within the course is you know and I think it's something that I was inspired Andrew by something that you had said in our meeting is just like taking it can be fifteen minutes like you had said fifteen minutes of just reading a day is is a uh, response or is kind of resistance to this attention economy. Well, I think the same thing applies to solitude. It's something that I know like Christopher who's here joining us has been really inspired by even just 15 minutes of I'm going to go on a walk without my phone, without music and just, and just be, and it's not a just be in a like meditative new agey way. And I'm going to meditate because you're still at that point. It's good for you for sure, but you're not engaging with your thoughts, thinking about the world, thinking about what did I do today? What did I say today? How am I feeling today? Um, and so, yeah, it is kind of this, this challenge that we've all taken on to get some real solitude in a world that tel- that never allows for it. Um, and then solitude goes hand in hand with solicitude. Solicitude being genuine, uninterrupted, distraction-free time with others to have real or like, risky conversations. Conversations that are difficult to have or conversations that require more time and energy and attention to really get into topics that matter. You know, if you're standing in an elevator with someone going, oh, the weather today, yeah. That's not like real solicitude in the way that Sherry Turkle imagines it. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. And so in the same vein that we challenge people in our cohort, that we challenge all of you, we challenge ourselves to have time for real solitude with ourselves, We take on this challenge to have real solicitude with other people. So take a phone call and try to challenge yourself to not distract yourself on your phone, on the phone call. Try to meet people in real life and and challenge yourself to say, hey, we're gonna keep our phones away so we can just be here and talk about the things that matter and talk about the things that interest us. Um, And this solitude and solicitude, in the way that it's presented in, reclaiming conversation, it's you know a, a very like popular book, it's easily accessible, it's something we can easily put into practice. But then at Theory Underground and in this critical media theory cohort, we take it a step further and try to kind of critically and rigorously understand the ways that the mediums, uh, the technologies, the attention to so- economy and capitalist society more in general are trying to kind of take away from our own ability to have genuine solitude and solicitude Because not only does having solitude and solicitude, um, you know, make our own lives better, makes our potential for both solitude and solicitude better because having real time with ourselves and being able to develop empathy and kind of having that ongoing relationship and dialogue with yourself makes you more available and open to others. And then having genuine solicitude with others then gives you, you know, fodder for your genuine solitude that's kind of where the, the virtuous circle, cyclical process of it comes from. You need both. <clears throat> um, yeah, we we try to take it a little bit deeper here at Theory Underground. Um, and it is all very much based in this media theory, trying to understand media, trying to understand mediums critically. And it's something that as the weeks go by and we have these conversations and we engage with media theory and more texts, both by and uh, inspired by Marshall McLuhan, I see the importance of media theory in education, in sociology, in philosophy, because to, to me, from my perspective, we truly are in this, in this crisis of humanity, in this crisis of technology. And something that Dave had kind of touched on is that I, I will be going back Uh, for a master's degree starting this spring in the fields of sociology, education, and then hopefully some philosophy. Unfortunately, I've discovered in the last few weeks, like all of the philosophy theory courses within the education department, all of the media theory courses in the communication department for graduate level, gone, not going to be offered anymore because there's no interest in it. Because it's not practical job skills and I want to really incorporate it and use it as a foundation in my studies to build up and yeah, to help develop you know a new model of education, a new model of maybe underground education, underground thought, underground movements, and how to bring the idea and the ethic of the university that Carl Jaspers uh, develops in the idea of the university to develop this media theory and understanding um, into, you know, how do we make education and our conversations and our intellect as a society better. And yeah, uh, critical media theory is very, is the the foundation of that. So I'm looking forward to coming into the university and going, no, we're not shutting down communication. We're not shutting down English. We're like, it's important. It matters just to have good lives and to hopefully make our society better. Um, and so with that being said, I'm going to plug our, uh, critical media theory course. We still have three months to go, so it's not too late to get involved. Uh, You can watch the courses or the lectures after the fact. This is going to be an ongoing conversation as well. It's not just gonna end once the course is over. Uh, The Theory Underground Hub events, this critical media theory, uh, topics of discussion and readings are always kind of a foundation in some of our conversations. And so you can check out the class information at theory-underground.com or I mean, that's that's the place for download the app and check it out there uh, available on iOS and Android. And yeah, thank you all for for listening. Such an honor to be here. And I think we're going to hear from Andrew again. Good job. Thank you. you.
1: Well done.
2: Thank you. Whoa. (laughs) That
0: was, than I <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, thank you, Ann. Wow, uh, a lot, a lot there to, to think about and a lot to potentially respond to. I guess my advantage is I can pick and choose just what I do respond to. Exactly. Uh, thank you all on the internet for tuning in. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's great that that we can all do these kind of para-academic activities you know i don't see myself as anti-academic um and the funny the funny thing is is i'm going next week to indiana to give a talk at a university you know and i barely graduated high school i don't have any degrees at all somebody messaged me earlier saying professor McLuhan, can you tell me about this thing <laughs> and you know i i hate to disabuse them of the notion but. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a doctorate, much less a bachelor's degree in anything. Um, and the wonderful thing is that uh, you don't you don't actually have to. you know. Uh, yeah. Academia has become kind of this, I don't want to speak too poorly about it. Oh, oh some of my best friends are academics. You know, <laughs> um, really. Uh, and they can be wonderful places, but the, they've also kind of outlived their usefulness in some ways and turned into this kind of very closed system that just perpetuates you know you get a degree and then you need to get another degree and then need to get another degree so that you can teach and, and get another degree and keep publishing and all this stuff and it's truly an, an awful treadmill at times i think which uh, i'd like to say i was smart enough to avoid but it really wasn't intentional so much as i just had enough of school <laughs> Um, the wonderful thing is that it, it's not necessary and you can start something called Theory Underground and I can start something called the McLuhan Institute and, uh, do our own thing. Um, uh, Marshall and my father, Eric, with Catherine Hutchin wrote a book called City is Classroom and, and their point was City is Classroom. One of Marshall's points, he was making this early in the 1950s, if not the 40s, that, um, You know, schools were obsolete. They no longer had the monopoly on knowledge that they used to, and that they were accustomed to uh, advertising, you know. Uh, For quite a long time now, there's been more information available outside of the school than within it. Hmm. Uh, And universities were organized in the first place because the reverse was true. The university was at one time. Uh, The place to go to learn all these things. This was where knowledge was and if you wanted to learn things, that's where you went Um, That hasn't been true for quite a long time much to their chagrin Um, So now we have we have the internet as as our classroom uh, Which is a wonderful thing it also comes with with many challenges Um, I See the internet like New York City New York City is a wonderful place uh also at times an awful place but you get you get something with this this critical density of people that it makes certain things possible that aren't possible other times this is a a prime example here if i were to hold a class here nobody would show up indeed i invited some people to come today (laughs) uh including members of the local media the newspapers and and none of them showed up, which is fine. Um, But I don't don't need them to show up because uh, we can reach you online. The difficult... uh, And that's the great thing, is like in New York City you could open up a store that only sells t-shirts manufactured in the USA between 1970 and 1983. And you'd make a living, you know? Um, Likewise, I can... I can start up the McLuhan Institute and I can offer courses. You can start Dairy Underground. You can offer courses um, and almost make a living, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe not quite. I've quit my day job for better or worse. But, uh, you know, the difficulty is that, and where the, the analogy fails, is that we're talking to a city of billions of people and... How do you find them? How do they find you? This is our challenge. The advantage of the university, the advantage of New York City, is that it's all in one place. And, you know, if you want to discover, you want a great Chinese meal, you go to Chinatown. You know, you want to learn about McLuhan. Well, let's not use McLuhan. You, You want to learn, you know, you go to the right department. You're not likely to learn much about McLuhan in most universities. But um, that's why we have the McLuhan Institute. Um, these, are, these are some of the challenges. Uh, it's funny you were saying meet space. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, meet time. You know, you need some me time.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: meat time is kind of uh, related
2: there so too. It's all it Me time and meat time. <laughs> right, nice. Oh, yeah.
1: The virtuous circle between me time and meat time.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Word play all day around here um but but this is important that academia no longer has a monopoly on knowledge or instruction uh and and we can very much do it ourselves indeed we have to because if we don't who's going to and that's why i started the mcclode institute because it didn't exist uh and i felt that um there would come a time my father wouldn't be around and uh, there was nothing in place to keep going Uh, indeed he died less than a year after I decided to start the McLuhan Institute. Um, you know, uh, Dave said that critical theory underground is a critical media theory experiment. Um, I think TMI is kind of, is a bit of a media ecology experiment. Um, in his last speech, which he gave the day before he died, uh, media ecology in the 21st century dad said media ecology is not a spectator sport um it's not it's about doing things and being active it's about creating (coughs) the underground or creating the clinton institute uh or going back to school and giving them help because they want to close the communication department or whatever else um it's about you know doing what our friend michael is doing which is working his job to pay the bills but not letting that stop him have a active uh life and exploration of other other things uh i mean i do i don't make a lot of money with the mcclellan institute you might be uh you know surprised to find sure. out but uh it's the other work that i do consulting and teaching and other things giving lectures. well no, are not giving lectures they don't pay a lot for lectures uh you know these things <laughs> i love a cat climbing a window screen that's a great thing and i love that they brought a cat with them uh, this is this is also a wonderful thing um, so I think I think underground not to dis you can call yourself what you like I think underground is kind of the wrong word because um, in order for us to be relevant we can't be underground we have to be above ground we have to be out there in the world in meat space I love that you you're doing a book tour in a minivan you're crossing borders uh, between states and countries coming to Canada this is a great thing. This is how it used to be done. And it's uh, a very important way of building connection and community. So uh, it really is my privilege that, that you came by here and included myself and the McCullough Institute in it. Um, so many fun things I wanted to comment on that you ma- mentioned. Um, you, you mentioned that democracy in the USA may be broken. This is an interesting thing and something I think about. Uh, I can't claim it to be my original thought. Marshall pointed it out to me that um, the United States is a unique country
3: to no, bud.
2: You're sorry.
0: That's fine, he's fine. The cat's messing things up. It's a he's,
2: fly. A fly. he's a fly, Very.
0: He's, um. He's not a fly it's in it's interesting because um the united states was founded uh on print uh the printed word and the speed of print mm. and the printed word and indeed the whole the whole notion of, of united states style participatory sorry representative democracy was founded at a time when um people couldn't all go to washington so uh they, they needed to appoint a person from their community to go there on the behalf uh, to make the decisions for them. Because, you know, it takes weeks for months, even in, in those times, for letters to go back and forth from Washington. Um, and that made sense in their time, in a time of the age of print in the, in the post, of mail. Um, but we passed that time a long time ago. Uh, the Telegraph blew that out of the water trains uh i love that we have uh nance nance joining us in, and i particularly enjoyed his his train of thought uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know we we created these structures in a, in a particular uh technological circumstance and the world moved on technologically but the structure haven't hasn't and this creates a kind of structural dissonance, because we've removed the foundation that was supporting this structure, and the structure cannot hold. Uh, this is this is why we, we have these kind of hangovers from institutions and in media of the past, but we no longer have the foundation for them. Literacy as well uh, is something that is without the foundation it once had. And we undermine them uh, at every every turn, but the democracy is in the USA is a great example because um, no longer do we need to send somebody to Washington to represent our views. Um, we can do an internet poll, or there could be an app for that. You know, really, most of of what they do in Washington is. Uh, uh, largely unnecessary it makes no sense in today's world but uh they're not willing to um change things in order to account for it and that that accounts for a lot of the problems i think that we have um (laughs) another thing dave said was that uh you know in academia marshall McLuhan was a fad uh it's really interesting um how Marshall was received in academia. And it it was a complicated thing. Um, You have to keep in mind that when Marshall came up and was doing his thing, uh, he started teaching at the University of Toronto in 1946. And that's basically when his real media studies work got kicked off. Um, There was no such thing as interdisciplinary studies. if, if you think that knowledge is siloed now, uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago, it was incredibly siloed, and you were not welcome in anybody else's program. English professors should stay in English, economics stay in economics, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Marshall's work, media studies, is necessarily interdisciplinary uh, because it touches everything. Um, and In order to understand it, you need to come from all all points of view so it's necessarily an interdisciplinary project Uh, and because of that marshall stepped on a lot of toes he wasn't trying to well maybe he was trying to a little bit (laughs) but um you know he wasn't trying to make enemies he was trying to but he called it needling the somnambulists in a letter to ezra Pound. he was trying to wake people up uh and it's great to see that people are are waking up a little bit, but um, so Marshall didn't didn't make many friends in academia uh, for various reasons. Um, another another one of the reasons was that it was very we we have this term public intellectual now, which didn't exist in his time uh, because that was not the sort of thing a professor did. You know, is very unseemly for a professor to to go on the on the radio or the television and be so in the press. And what are you doing? Well, Marshall, finally, enough, was doing kind of the same thing. I'm doing the same thing he was doing, which is realizing that I need to step outside of my meat space or whatever <laughs> in order to reach people. Because Marshall, if Marshall had just stayed within the university confines, nobody today would know who he was uh, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So uh, so that also didn't win him many friends and it, it persists to this day because the professors who didn't like him then had grad students who had grad students who had, gra- who have grad students. Uh, and here we are a lot of, a lot of these things, a lot of these academic grudges get passed down, which is kind of sad, uh, very sad. Um, but this, uh, this discussion of, of meat space, um, wow. Although it's not a term Marshall would have used, it's a theme that he explored extensively. Uh, and it's, it's not new because Marshall said, uh, he brought this, he was thinking about this in relation to the telephone and the telegraph, that whether you're on the phone or on the radio, uh, you're not just here, you're everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is an interesting, this is an interesting thing uh, is that he, he he originally spoke of this as a condition of angelism. He related it to angels who don't have physical bodies. Um, he later called it discarnate. He, he stepped away from angelism for the obvious implications and, and moved to using this term discarnate to speak <clears throat> of our lives outside of our bodies or no longer dependent in the same way as our bodies. Uh And here we are in 2023 where the latest polls have people spending eight to 12 hours a day on screens online. Just like that's a verifiable statistic and it's wild to think about, but this has very, very serious complications because, um, without a body it, it changes, it changes many, many things about us. And I wonder, um, you know, what, what uh, Anne quoted Sherry Turkle is this crisis in empathy. I wonder if we're having a crisis in empathy because empathy is a very bodily thing. Mm. Uh, how many of these things which we are going through now are the result of losing touch with our bodies, of living outside our bodies where our body is no longer the determining factor that it used to be. Uh this very much explains a lot of the difficulties that we have in relation to our bodies, what a bodily identity means in terms of gender and sexuality and anything else uh because if you don't have a body how do you have how do you have a gender? What does that even mean uh These are things worth thinking about, which um need to be talked about by a lot more than some random kids calling themselves media theorists or whatever mm-hmm. else. Um, they need to be talked about in Washington. Uh, they need to be talked about in Silicon Valley because that's where these changes happen, or where nobody's doing thing about the changes that happen. Um, and this is uh, so this is this is the main object of what I'm doing here at the McLuhan Institute, which is to try and bring these conversations forward more and more and to use all the tools at our disposal to look at the effects of technologies. And that's I'm not I'm not particularly that concerned with with theory. Uh, I'm not sure most people are Um, people want to understand what's going on. Um, And what I'm interested in in McLuhan work and any other work for that for that matter is is what is useful for helping us make a difference in our lives. So um, that's that's the reasoning behind this Maelstrom Escape Strategies thing that I, I did. Actually, this is a, Survive as is, is one of the pieces. Um, the, the main thrust of Maelstrom Escape Strategies is recognizing that we're in this technological vortex and we're going down fast. Um, and what do you do about it? Well, uh, so how do you escape the vortex? And the first thing is um, to, to simply uh, survive. So find you know, a PDF, something to hold on to, some, some eddy out of the current to catch your breath. Um, after you've, you've caught your breath and, and have your wits about you, to find ways of escaping the actual vortex, get safe, get on dry land, And then thirdly, after you've survived an escape, to avoid the next one instead of, you know, jumping headfirst into it like we do every time a new technology comes around. We can't wait to um, incorporate it into our lives and and be, you know, fundamentally reshaped by it. Um, This is not a strategy for for survival and continuity of, of culture at all. Uh, one of these one of these ways is, uh, you know, as as Anne mentioned, going outside and, and taking a walk without um, bringing your phone with you, you know, and not necessarily meditating or whatever, but just you know being. <laughs> and it's a difficult thing for somebody who's used to listening to a podcast while they walk or on the bus or train or whatever else. It's very difficult to be confronted um, with that lack of mediation. Um, you know, here in the country, people think that it's really quiet and, and peaceful, and it might be kind of peaceful, but it's not quiet. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, I, I like to think about, about it in terms of generative distractions. You know, um, if you sit and watch a sunset versus if you sit and watch a TV program, they're very, very different experiences uh although arguably no less filled with information but um you know you when you sit and watch the clouds go by you contemplate and when you sit and watch television you vegetate Mm. Uh, Mm. i should have written that down that's a good one
2: (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) we got
0: it oh you got it okay perfect so um maelstrom escape strategies another uh another one of them why, why I suggest people read uh, read on paper? Now you've got somebody in the waiting room.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: Uh, why I suggest people reading on paper uh, versus reading on screens, uh, eBooks or whatever else. It is not uh, just because I'm particularly fond of, of paper uh, and books, which I am, but because they're different media, they're different technologies. Um, when you, when you read on a screen, your eye tends to scan and skip. And uh, when you read on a, on a page, uh, less so. And, and you can experiment and try this. But part of this has to do with the difference between media in that when you're looking at a page and reading a page, you're looking at light reflecting off it, versus when you're reading a screen, the light is coming through the source. And these have very, very different effects, cognitive effects. Um the other thing has to do with fonts. Interestingly <coughs> enough, um serif fonts, which are what are mostly used on paper, you know, the, the letters with the little ticks on the end of them, kind of anchor the eye and, and follow you to uh, encourage you to stick with it more. Sans serif fonts uh encourage you more to browse. It's it's odd, but it but it's a thing. Um and the thing is you read more slowly on paper. Uh, and this is important. Um, it's the same, the same reason why I encourage people to, to write by hand. So um, try the reading experiment, but try the writing experiment. Try writing a page a day uh, by hand, pen or pencil. And it can be uh, just looking around the room, looking at the window and making observations. It can be writing, maybe try writing a letter to somebody. This is a good way. Uh, everybody would love to get a letter from you. I'd love to get a letter from you. Uh, and you can write to me at P.O. Box 237 Bloomfield, Ontario, uh, if you wish. I usually write back. But um, write a letter and because when you write by hand, uh, I've clocked it myself, I write at about 40 words a minute by hand. I type at 80. Uh, on my computer. Um, and these, these lead to very, very different things. Um, so your mind has to slow down to follow your hand. Uh, and if, if you find that you're a very anxious person, that um, you know, you're suffering the same way we all are, this kind of hyper life that we live, one way to actually get a breather and slow down is to write by hand because it slows it it's like gearing down in a truck when you're hitting a big hill it slows down the machine um so these are these are coping strategies or, or kind of ways to find breathing room in eddies while we're going through this vortex that we have because you know not everybody can just throw their smartphone away and go live on an island tahiti or move to bahamas or whatever um that's just not feasible people have to work sometimes two jobs people have to raise their kids but you can find 15 minutes a day to do this I know you Mm -hmm. can everybody can uh the kids do eventually fall asleep and you can you can take 15 minutes uh and and you'll feel better for it um maybe oh yeah what one other thing I'll mention is um I forget the context, uh, Dave or Ian said it, but, uh, you kind of asked where media come from and, uh, Marshall McLuhan answers this in understanding media. I taught a class on it last week. Um, the chapter, chapter four, uh, the gadget lever, Narcissus as Narcosis, mm. really interesting chapter, very dense. It's like half a dozen pages long, but, uh, it's so packed with information and, uh, Marshall uh, brings up uh, this guy, um, what's his name, Adolf, someone or other, who wrote this book uh, about biology, and it's uh, about irritation and counter irritation. And Marshall's thesis is that uh, we create technologies essentially because of a a pressure of some kind, a social pressure, uh, or even a technological pressure. And it's our it's our answer uh, to make something faster, more efficient, easy, easier, whatever. Um, but uh, the meat the meat of the chapter, narcissus as narcosis, is talking about this Greek myth of narcissus, and um, his take on the narcissus myth is a little different than the one uh, we commonly think of today when people speak about narcissists and narcissism. And if you actually go in and read the myth, um, it's in Ovid in his Metamorphosis, Book Three. Um, and Narcissus uh, finds this pool and he leans down to take a drink and um, is confronted with this image and becomes fascinated by it and eventually withers away and dies, um, unable to, b- to break the spell he's come under. The difficulty is is that he doesn't recognize it as his image he thinks he's looking at somebody else not himself and this is this is the main point point. and i think what differentiates it from our take on narcissism these days uh is that we he doesn't understand that he's actually looking at an extension of himself and i was very interested in this because it made me think about another Greek myth that has to do with image and reflection, and that is the one about Perseus. And Perseus, in, in the in the myth, um, is the one who slays Medusa the Gorgon. Uh, Medusa the Gorgon is this fearsome beast um, who uh, turns people to stone when they look at her. And how, how Perseus slays the Gorgon is by shining up his shield to like a mirror finish and looking at her obliquely, uh, indirectly. And that's how he can avoid being turned to stone. This to me is a really interesting reversal of the Narcissus story, because instead of um, being fascinated with the reflection, he's using the reflection as a means to cut off the head of the Medusa. This to me is possibly uh, a, a strategy of escaping or maelstrom and, and I'm kind of surprised that that Marshall never hit on it or used it, and he didn't as far as I could see mm. but uh, uh i'm I'm really interested in that comparison these days uh, yeah I, I was also really fascinated on that discussion of time uh, there's a a speech Marshall gave, and I should have led with this but. Uh, at the beginning, he talks about how time, um, you know, is subjective and different for different people. And indeed, um, you know, for the speaker, the time is really short, and you know, you have so much to say. While well, for the audience, it seems to stretch to eternity. Yeah. Uh, so, so with that, I'll I'll, uh, I'll close my comments and uh, just say thank you all for tuning in here. Thank you especially. <coughs> Dave and Anne and uh, Eamon, uh, who's a neighbor I didn't know I had, uh, over in Kingston, Ontario, uh, for coming and, uh, you know, doing this IRL thing, um, kicking off. I want to do a lot of things here at the McLuhan Institute, including a lot more of this kind of thing, and uh, I think this is a great first one, so thank you very much for being here.
2: Thank you. Dry
1: cough attack. Coming in here. Um. <laughs> actually, we're gonna take a take like a one and a half minute break. so what. I, what I hope that you all will do in the in the in the Zoom side is talk amongst yourselves. Raise your <laughs> hands. Yeah, raise your hands if you have questions for us. And if you don't have a question that comes immediately to mind, or you think that it's too stupid to say. You're wrong, and just sit there and and, and, uh, and write something out. Just think about it for a second. Uh, take this minute and a half to to breathe and and reflect. I'll be right back. I have to grab the GoPro. I realized I actually need it for this next. <coughs> oh yeah, this next part of what we're doing here. So. Right.
0: My kids uh, will be getting off the bus in about ten minutes.
2: Okay. Cool.
0: Country life. It's, it's a beautiful thing. The bus comes and magically takes them away at 7.30 in the morning. Wow. And then delivers them back to me at about 3.05 wow. in the afternoon. There? It is magical. Oh my
2: goodness. Cool.
0: Yeah, the summer is great, but I'm glad when school's back.
2: Yeah.
0: It gives me the day again.
2: Mm-hmm. How old are your kids?
0: Uh, seven and nine.
2: Okay. Yeah. <coughs> my goodness, excuse me.
4: So you have I like, like a, a health
0: issue or something?
2: I'm just on the tail end of a cold and I'm so prone. Oh, like that dry cough. Yeah. Like I've been fine for a week now, but it's like, I get the lingering right. cough for mm,
3: yeah. two
2: weeks. So I sound worse than I am, I swear. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> so apologies. It's, they come on and I'm like, oh my God. I
4: had that with COVID, <laughs> lingering cough.
0: After you're better, <coughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yeah.
2: mm-hmm. oh no! No. I know. I got the, the cough. The dry cough
1: attack. It'll pass. It will pass. So let's see. I just want to get this angle because I don't want I don't want the zoom one to be what we have for this section. All right, and this section matters to me because the panel portion. Is I think the coolest part.
2: Should we bring this chair over or are you going
1: to sit? Over? I'll sit there. Okay,
2: perfect.
1: We'll just have two angles on the panel.
2: Please.
1: That one and this one. Okay, it's recording. We're good. Okay.
4: And do you want my Mic seat check, there? mic check. No, no.
1: Mic check, mic check. All right, everybody, I hope this is coming through just fine, this one, but uh, here you
0: go. Oh, hello, chat. I always wanted to do uh, a speech with a hype man, you know, doing ad-libs oh, behind my speech. Oh, that could be... oh, good. My wife is home, so I don't oh, need cool. to meet the kids off the school bus. Oh,
1: not the media, dang. <laughs> right. The local media. Even, even better. <laughs> all right everybody now you can hear me uh, i just realized you all couldn't hear the te- the mic check i mute- I muted <laughs> it on the zoom side so you could all talk uh yeah during that break well we're back now and uh from the zoom side you should be able to see where it says ansonelle grove that is actually the panel, the panel. and then here i am and we're all kind of in a line and so um let's do questions Let's uh, also just share comments and thoughts that we might have. It looks like Nance probably had to drop because his train reached a stop and he's probably trying to arrange transportation to the next city because he's trying to get to us because we're going to meet him tomorrow in Burlington, Vermont. Oh, really? Yeah, when we get together with Todd McGowan. And so, yeah, okay, anybody... uh, have any questions we can hear we have a speaker you'll be able to come through on I'll jump in Uh, it's Max. can you hear me we got
0: you
3: yep okay um I have to
0: go back to work in like one minute but um I listened to Sam McCormick and he was talking about the gaze and and when we are seen like on Instagram um we perceive ourselves as whole, as not lacking, right? We, we It's like the mirror image, until there's a spot. He gets into some details, but <clears throat> I just wanted to say that in, in the like uh, Instagram, right? Where we are presenting ourselves on Instagram, and uh, we are observing and experiencing ourselves as being seen as not lacking, mm. so... That's my uh, that's my media comment. <laughs> I'm, I'm really proud of you guys. It's
1: amazing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vince. That's a good point. Okay, I'm back to work. Talk <laughs> to you later. Take care. Bye. I think it's so cool when people are able to join from their work or you know, like on break mm-hmm. and yeah?
0: Well, I guess Mike had to get back to work.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think Mikey had
0: to get back to work too. But that's okay. There's other bearded fellows in the virtual room. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Oh, there we go. Uh, there Hello. we go. It works.
1: It makes a difference. Yeah, yeah it, for, the, really a difference? for the for oh. the
2: computer audio. Oh, right. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. And the camera audio.
2: Oh, yeah. Because
1: that is um, all synced up in the future.
0: I think I look better with a microphone accessory. I don't know. It does, it makes it does you something
1: mean... for my image. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this thing that about, you know, the meat space becoming also like a hybrid space and like what you can do with a physical space to really change its, like how we feel in it, I don't know. Hey, you might wanna put a book under that or something. I almost did yeah, this. There's, there's a good the, one right there if you wanna do fine. that. Uh, the microphone is actually a
0: funny instrument. I laugh at, <coughs> I, don't know, I don't watch TikTok, but I, I see these things come up from time to time. And people have like these miniature microphones. Yeah. They're like this big and they're holding them like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> <that's laughs> just the most absurd thing. It's so fun- <laughs> I find it so funny. Like first people were using a lapel mic mm-hmm. and just hold it like a lav and holding it here. And it's like, well, that's what the clip thing is for, but so you okay. you don't have to, yeah. You know? um, and then, but then they actually it's started really making man. these miniature microphones. Like it looks like a miniature mic, yeah, but so it, it's-, it's-, it's that size. And then contrast that with like one of my heroes narguar the human serviette we love him Nargwar. you know who uh vastly <coughs> underappreciated canadian cultural hero as far as i'm concerned but his might game is like yeah. so hard he's like right in people's like face with it yeah like it's the yeah. it's a it's a great thing you know you've made it when Nardwar wants to interview you. It's true. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I I will not have made it until Nardwar comes to call me. So, so I don't make
2: that happen.
1: Theory Underground will not be above ground until Nardwar <laughs> is putting his microphone in our face. Right?
2: That's right. the... Yeah.
0: yeah. And now, I'm not a hip-hop artist. <laughs> I'm a former punk rocker. He used to do a lot of punk stuff. Mm-hmm. He right. interviewed... Um, black flag what's his name there we were talking about thank you henry rollins uh who most unfortunately did not get what he was up to but that's okay oh he
1: didn't get it no no, oh no no.
0: it's really bad i thought he was gonna punch (laughs) out nardwire but it's it's okay um yeah nardwire who's like one of the most canadian people out there he's so unreasonably proud he seizes on any small canadian claim to fame with regard to hip-hop you know like um there are certain uh the uh the apache break was actually produced in canada Mm. in vancouver uh and he tries to get rappers to confirm this at any given opportunity it's really funny (laughs) um but you know marshall McLuhan is also a fairly large canadian claim to fame although canadians don't generally like to claim him as their own which is kind of funny but you know, there's hope. Maybe, maybe someday, Nardwuar will get interested.
1: That would require being literate, man, and they are not. And that's McLuhan's point, right? And so he's kind of predicting the end of the, the literate man and the, the rise of the oral. Exactly, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which, well, actually, I was gonna, say, I was gonna actually ask a question about that, but now I want to uh, set that aside. So I Remind you all, like, just, just, uh, there's a, there's a feature on zoom where you go to reactions click on that and then there's like an arrow up you can uh if you just click on reactions you can click raise hand so you can even raise your hand and or, the camera and senses
0: we're... it now and raises the hand reaction for you
1: Wait, have man. you noticed
0: that? Yeah, I haven't
1: noticed that yet oh.
0: yeah. it tricked me <laughs> the other day when I like put my hand up and like it and raised the
1: hand reaction I'm like oh that's kind of
2: freezing not doing it for them I don't know I wonder if we have to like my have to do
1: it, so maybe well, just mess with Well, let me just me. close out one thing that I was saying, though, which mm-hmm. was that the space, the physical space. Um, I figured out a long time ago, just messing around with podcasts, that when you set up an actual microphone, like the this setup, I've been using this setup for years. We've got an audio assembly to two microphones, and it goes into the computer. It's not that fancy, but it's a few hundred dollars. And you hold, you're holding the one mic, that is mobile. Other people can get it. And I've got the stationary mic and that can serve a lot of functions. But when you set that up, it's the opposite of the, oh, there's a phone on the table. Now the conversation doesn't go as deep. As soon as as you actually equip a space with the recording and or live Mm -hmm. dynamic, and then you actually introduce it, it's like, this is not a normal space anymore. It's like, we've actually kind of created the public here. Like we've kind of made Mm. the public here, even if it's just recorded because ostensibly you're going to do something with that in the future and then other people will be listening in. And so it's like, Oh, we're just hanging out. It's just two or three or five of us hanging out and we're talking and we're having great conversations, but then, okay, hold on. Let's put a little foresight into this. We got to set it up, run the mics, blah, blah, blah. Now it's a different kind of space and it changes Mm. the dynamic in a really interesting way. And so, um, it is a, it's a, it's kind of like, it is a, I don't know what it, what it is doing as far as like the medium goes, but it's obviously different than just, just being there. Mm-hmm. so. I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A
2: comment a slash <laughs> question. Um, the question is unrelated to the comment. Um, I think I had said this in when we had our meeting before the critical media theory course um, with Andrew, but I, I appreciate that your focus is not so much in the theory and that it is in like, we need to get this noticed by governments and like institutional changes. So I first just want to like say, I really appreciate what you do here um, with the McLuhan Institute and your own work my question for you that is completely unrelated I want to know um, for those maybe you've ever seen the uh the McLuhan Institute logo over here is an M with an upside down bird and I want to know what the meaning of that is if we could
0: (laughs) definitely um in fact I love to talk about it uh well if you could uh is there a view of it? No, there's not a view of it. Here. No.
2: I can. Uh,
1: for the Zoom side people, and we'll show you all what's actually in front of this. Well, there you go. So, um, this is
0: this is a funny thing. Uh, when I was trying to think of a visual identity for the McLuhan Institute, um, Marshall, Marshall McLuhan grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, okay. Midwestern Canadian province. Uh, Winnipeg is a bit of a dusty town at the moment but it used to be it was a rail hub and it used to be like one of the top cities in North America mm-hmm. it was really happening but oh. um, uh, it was a it's a river hub too which was more important before rail but um, uh, Marshall for whatever reason called himself a Winnipegian and as far as I know, this is not a thing. <laughs> People are, do not generally call themselves Winnipegians who are from Winnipeg. Uh, <laughs> but Marshall did for, for reasons I do not know. However, uh, I always love that because I kind of love pigeons. I identify with pigeons. Pigeons to me are like street doves. They're like, you know. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They're friends. Oh, they are very much. Yeah, I, I dig them. Um, I I knew this guy who as a random side hustle um, when people were having funerals or or weddings and they wanted to release doves they called him up and he showed up with his cage of birds and you'd think wow that's that's an incredible thing to do and man must be expensive how do you get all those doves well they're actually white pigeons they're homing pigeons
3: Mm.
0: (laughs) and that look like (laughs) doves so he would drive the pigeons over and at the moment he'd let them go and they all fly away and they go back to their roost. Mm. And he can gather them up and oh bring gosh. them to the next place. Nice. Right? So when you're seeing doves released at an event, they're not doves, they're actually pigeons in disguise. And I love that. But anyway, back to the story. So I I love this this idea of, of win a pigeon and I, I designed this logo with a pigeon sitting on top of a W for Winnipeg as the Winnipeg, uh, Winnipeg logo. Um, then for the McLuhan Institute, it's a, it's a pigeon hanging from an M and I, I went, you know, we have this expression in English, flipping the bird. Right. Mm. So I kind of flipped the bird <coughs> and now it's a, a pigeon hanging from M for McLuhan or, nice. media, or whatever else. And it's just to show, um, the playfulness uh, and more playfulness than irreverence. But, um, and it's kind of, you know, my punk rock roots as well, where I used to spend a lot of time flipping the bird at people uh, visually or, or sonically. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's the logo.
1: It's amazing, thank you. I never actually knew all of that. I think I knew the Win a pigeon part because it rings a bell. But um, yeah, pigeons get a bad rep. People hate them, like, but they're they're friends. They they were domesticated by I us mean, in the first place. They're not seagulls. Yeah. People should just be grateful they're not seagulls, right? right? Yeah. Um Anne has had to step out of the space here to run and go get water. But um, Christopher is someone who is in the critical media theory cohort. And um, I thought maybe it would be cool if for a moment you um, really say hi and you don't have to ask a question for everybody. But if you have one, you know, absolutely. Or, you know, just anything you were thinking about in relation to um, the talks today. Hello, now I'm thinking about pigeons, but um, <laughs> nice to meet you. I missed uh, some of the lecture because I had physical therapy. So if my question was addressed already, just assume I wasn't here. But I would say, what other thinkers would you say are relevant when it comes to technology and the media and ways to, like, in a real-time make change whether it's just yourself or large scale
2: that's a really just an easy
0: question that's a that's a good question um i think i think i think when people do it it's inadvertent so i think uh, i think of of writers and musicians musicians especially as people in the public sphere who are encouraging you um, to do different uh, by actually making stuff, uh, going out there and doing doing things. I mean, uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to uh, maybe not pick up an instrument, start a band, you know, write poetry, write songs, whatever. Uh, it's not. It's difficult. <laughs> um but it's it's never been <laughs> it's never been easier or more difficult uh, to connect with people right and it's such an interesting tension between those two things uh, and this is something you know when i made the uh the new york city reference before this is something that we've we have figured out with with cities in meet space in physical space that we have not managed to figure out in internet architecture um getting noticed on the internet is like pouring your glass of water into the ocean and expecting anybody to notice Mm -hmm. right you're just adding your voice to the millions billions of voices out there and how do you how do you find anything uh algorithms are are a very poor they're currently a very poor answer we haven't nobody's figured out how to really uh hack algorithms from a user side of things yet I don't think I haven't seen it I mean there are ways you can like you know game algorithms to get notice on them or something but that's not what I mean I mean like coming up with uh you know a punk rock algorithm or that Mm -hmm. kind of ethos Mm. attached to uh hacking you know uh That'll be an interesting development in computer culture when hackers, uh, attack algorithms. I think that's, that's possible, interesting territory. And we've gone way beyond what you, uh, brought up as a question, but that's the fun thing about questions and answers. Is we're not obligated to actually directly answer your question. <laughs> people don't realize. I'm sure No, no, this is interesting. No, I'm, I'm just messing around, but actually, that's the fun thing about being interviewed is that people don't realize that you are not obligated to answer the question. You can say any damn thing in response, and uh, you can have a lot of fun with that. And when you do a lot of interviews, you start to look for ways of having fun mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's uh
1: that's one of the, the small pleasures we can we can yeah. get and the question that christopher had asked yeah and i'll give you some time to think about it but it's what are some other thinkers on our radar for uh understanding media and critique
3: Ooh.
0: so
1: <clears throat> i just wanted to say a couple of names that we left out that are pretty essential um virilio is somebody who's really important who i struggle with and i know he's more important than i've ever given him credit and so he's someone i've been looking into on the side but i'm not there with him yet like mikey was studying him like i remember like eight years ago and sharing quotes by him talking and i remember being like what the hell is this guy talking about why does it matter and it i he's basically the theorist of speed and so when we, when we think about how everything's speeding up all of the time, he's thinking about that. And, you know, he's famous for saying that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, which is important for kind of checking our tendency to just see everything as progress all the way. It's like, yeah, but what are the externalities of that progress? You know, environmental, um, exploitative, whatever, etc. cetera. Um, but he also brings like a, an interesting... Perspective to speed and theorizing it because he is thinking about how the reason that things speed up It does have something to do with military <coughs> And the actual fact that we are on the other side of the first two world wars and there could be a third one and the development of the uh, of military might and its mm. sophistication uh, comes along with like this drive to ever increase speed and of course we also think when it comes to speed, Amazon loses like $36 million for every like 0. .0001 second it takes for the website to load. Like it, the longer it takes the website to load, the more people they lose. And so when we are like, well, why do we need a new phone every year? Why do, why do we need 5G? Why do we need, why does it always faster, faster, faster? And then our phones aren't actually faster. And it's like, well, this is one of those things where, um, This increase in power and speed we get with the modern medium that McLuhan was keen on, its main driver is on the one side, uh, companies like Amazon, and on the other side, the actual military industrial complex. And so Mm. obviously that's the the people who are pushing for that and and that that have harnessed all technological development towards these ends. um, They've got bigger things to worry about than our anxieties they've got bigger things to worry about than that you know so that's just the thing that i'm thinking
0: this is why i i find it so bizarre this accelerationist movement yeah because it seems uh like the exact opposite thing we should be doing um (laughs) Mm -hmm. like why hasten our doom that that makes zero sense to me um this is why my escape strategies are all about slowing things down um, because how how else do you, can you expect to survive? Uh, it's a bizarre thing, but um, it's it, the speed is actually a mix. It's not all it's it's not all doom. Marshall um, acknowledges that he couldn't have done what he did in any other time. Just mm-hmm. because um, when when change happens really slow, you don't notice it. Uh, and for most of uh, human history, change happens slowly. Um, it's only in the the last few centuries that that's been different. When when things happen slowly, you you can adjust to them. Um, when they happen quickly, you can't adjust. You can only react. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marshall was fond of uh, quoting Bertrand Russell, who said. Um, if they only raise the temperature of the bath water by half a degree every hour, you wouldn't know when to scream. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the frog in mm-hmm. the... Yeah, I, exactly. right. Exactly. Everyone has that it's saying about the frog, slowly. right? Uh-huh. So the advantage of our time is things happen so quickly, we can't adjust. We have an opportunity to notice it for the first time.
1: And that's, and that's a condition of freedom. That's a condition of freedom. Right.
0: Sure so but but that's the other point and this is my point about theory and practice is that it's one thing to say we have a chance to do something about it it's another thing to do something about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
1: here we are you know doing things about doing it things,
2: so when, yeah.
1: win, win. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, christopher i know you're reading him the other answer is obviously Byung Chul han
2: that's who i was thinking too yeah yeah
1: who we will be reading in two months basically and so uh and then i think we'll also read him on the final month his psychopolitics his in the swarm his the scent of time like these are absolutely essential um Mm. not just for cmt but also um as far as like uh popular philosophers goes i I think the work he does is some of the most cutting edge and that he is in dialogue with most of the thinkers I am. And so I just, I get a lot of inspiration from him. And he likes Sloterdijk or Zizek does not turn to philosophy departments and then face them. When he talks, he turns to mm. artists and, and people who are just trying to think. And, um, but he's, um, he's a Korean, he's a Korean German, um, or, uh, I don't really know how to say that, but he's, a, he, I think he's from Korea and he lives in Germany and, um, and most of the philosophy he's based in is French and German, but he uh, he he takes inspiration from Zen and like the art of the haiku and he talks about that and you see it in his writing style. His is like extreme, extremely condensed, succinct and so and, and clear, but it could also be, Seductively clear in a bad way, where you actually underestimate him, and you're not. You read too fast, and you don't realize he's packed so much into mm. every page. That I do think a lot of people underestimate Gun No, Johan. no one makes that mistake with Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. It, it's impossible to read fast. The last thing I have uh, before I, I I'll ask you all to say your final thoughts uh, is, and then we'll close this thing out. Is that i did not realize when you said that the wi-fi here is uh tmi that that's the um acronym or initials of the McLuhan yeah, institute McLaren. really i was thinking too much information yeah and so um and then when you said it during your talk i was like duh but then i was <laughs> yeah. like because i had thought oh that's clever the internet is too much information <laughs> so it's like here's the wi-fi you know Access the internet with this TMI it makes sense, um, but then it also is just in line with the wordplay we've already been doing today. I was thinking about how it's a nice coincidence because without media theory, the information age is just TMI, TMI. because we don't know what to do with or how to sift through or live with all of that information. And so that's why you're important. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other part of it, like the Wi-Fi password, because TMI the medium is.
2: That's what I was saying. I was gonna expose your password, but you did it. Hey, that's fine. If you wanna,
0: like I said to you guys, (laughs) if you're gonna come and hack this network, I see you. Yeah, (laughs) the
2: window.
0: I'm literally between farms here, so uh, you'll stand out unless you are disguised as a cow.
1: (laughs)
2: <laughs> and even then
0: i'll probably see you because i know what a cow looks like but i would love if somebody showed up in a cow costume trying On to hack phone, my yeah. my very very secure Thanks. network over here <laughs> honestly thank you cool.
2: <laughs> yeah um
0: Take that. what about our audience member do you have any comments amen
4: uh as our, our uh, token Trotskyist, I had just a couple <laughs> couple things.
1: Uh, oh okay <laughs> that
4: I had noted. Um, Dave, when you were talking about uh, yeah, base and superstructure in relation to Marx, like yeah I, I kind of uh, kind of related to that. Like um, when you ask Marx the question about power the, uh, of the ruling class uh, ideology and the superstructure, they'll all acknowledge that the superstructure can, can affect the base. The issue is they don't do anything about it. They don't they don't bother with any rigorous analysis of the like the technologies um, of media and bourgeois ideology, how they're deployed and how they shape and reshape society. They'll produce biting analysis uh, of uh, you know postmodernism, identity politics, Stalinism, Austrian economics, etc. But never their method of deployment and no, yeah, there's no media critique there. Um, so yeah, it's just a thought I had there. Which we thought was odd. Like they'll, like if if you say, "Oh, I'm I'm reading uh, Gramsci or something," they'll look a little side eyed at you. They won't tell you not to read it, but they'll be like, "You know, focus on your Lenin and Trotsky and Marx," um, because to them it's kind of fluff. It's not. It's it's not. Uh, you know, we got newspapers for that.
3: Mm.
4: <laughs> um, and then you were uh, Andrew. You were mentioning uh, hangovers from the past, and that triggered my, my Trotskyism. Um, because, you know, like, I don't know if it was Trotsky or Marx who said that, uh, you know, things can long outlast their historical purpose and, you know, things can limp along uh, until conditions produce a, a crisis sufficient to sweep away the old order, replace it with a fresh order at a higher level. Um, you know, stone tablets, cave paintings, newspapers, VHS, these are all things that have been kind of supplanted. Um, some are still in use, sort of, others are just completely. Gone. We don't need them at all anymore. Um, and, you know, capitalism would be the main example of that. You know, so it served a progressive role in the 19th century, but then it's rotting senility now. Its, uh, it's ability to produce social progress has long ago expired. Um, and, yeah, those are just my thoughts on
1: I also, here's the thing you, I kind of forgot your contributor in the volume, Underground Theory. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and it's because we added him very last minute because he gave this awesome lecture that we, we were like man it'd be so cool to have that in the volume if you just give it he's, he already typed it out fluff it up slightly to make it a little bit more like an like a chapter and we'll actually add it and so we got him in last minute and so he's not even in the early drafts like mm-hmm. the one the, the draft we have here on the table not in there but um yeah maybe just tell people the title and Kind of what you did there, and your video will go up here in the next couple of days, and they'll be able to check it out on the Theory Underground channel.
4: Yeah, so uh, I, a, I wrote an article. No, I wrote a presentation, basically on uh, what was it? What did I call it? Uh, letter
1: a letter. The Solitariats. Yeah, take the mic. Yeah, and and knows it off the topper. Of
2: the Solitariats' letter to soft-bodied theory dorks. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
4: Because I'm a personal trainer, and that's uh, and I own a gym. So I wrote. I did. I wrote. uh, That was the subtitle or the title. That was the title. And the subtitle is "Dialectics of Fitness." And so I.
0: Nice. Yeah.
4: So I I I wrote a a paper, uh, an article on like how to think about fitness from a, kind of a Marxist or dialectical perspective.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty cool.
0: I mean, that's good enough. I don't even need to read the article. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah.
2: good. laughs> yeah. I'm sold. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I don't think about your health and fitness. Yeah.
1: So make sure to order a copy of Underground Theory and uh, if you ever get it in the mail, and I say that because he still hasn't received his, but Christopher keeps getting everything he orders. So um, I think it's just a, a fluke of the system. Sometimes they run out of copies and then they have to reprint them and that takes a while, but... Uh, we'll let Anne close this thing
2: out. Yeah, um, my closing thoughts here. So I don't know, Andrew, if you know about this, but we had shared with one of the contributors of the author uh, or of the book, um, a cover of our our draft cover of the book. Um, and he said, oh, can I post this on Twitter to show people about the book? And we said, sure. And so he posted it like, oh, Underground Theory coming out soon. And this tweet got, like, a lot of people because some of the names on there are considered controversial. Or we had the name Underground Theory and then had, like, Marshall McLuhan and Slavoj right. Zizek. And they're like, these aren't underground. And, yeah, a couple people going, oh, wow, Underground Theory from Slavoj Zizek, a top professor, Tom McGowan, and a dead guy, Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> like, and so, people, yeah. I just, <laughs> I'm, like, shocked that pe- that was people's reaction versus... Wait, Marshall McLuhan he hasn't been around for a while. there's a new piece on there and so this he is, is
0: literally underground. He
2: is literally underground yeah. um, And so <laughs> I just want to say like I'm really Take excited that. to have that piece in there. I think all the other people kind of in the underground theory community are actually like what the what is wrong with you Twitter people like this is a big deal and so thank you for helping make that happen. Yeah, get your copy of Underground Theory. Check out this letter. Um, it is unique because we actually pasted in screenshots of the original, like typewritten text, so to kind of preserve the historical uh, importance of it and just to see it for you, what it is. You, and so you
1: can like see his little corrections. You can see his little
2: corrections. It. It's super cool, and yeah, only available in Underground Theory. Check it out. Check it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So go to HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash store and you can get underground theory and my book time energy which i was sitting there and i was i kept thinking oh i had this one thread that i was talking about and then i lost it and i never actually tied that up and i had this other thread i never fit because after I finished talking, I was like, wow, yeah, I brought up time energy and then I never really explained that. Or I brought up the time lapse thing and I never really explained that. I explain it elsewhere. You all know what it's about. <laughs> if you don't know what it's about, you eventually will we'll get the memo. After everyone's doing it, you'll know. Yeah. But no, the, uh, the time energy thing, it's important. It ties into critical media theory. <clears throat> and it is a way of kind of bringing it back to something that Anne had actually said, which was that um, I had not been uh, saying that Uh, Theory Underground is a critical media theory uh, experiment until we were doing this cohort but um, the subtitle of my first book Waypoint which came out in 2020 or 2021 I think it was written over 2019 to 2020 and then it was published 2021 but the subtitle is uh, Time Energy, Culture War and Critical Media Theory. And The reason Critical Media Theory is in the subtitle is because I, I knew even then that that's one of my main threads and the chapter where i deal with this idea of cancel culture and i try to do a material analysis of it it's all just critical media theory it's just about people's attention spans and how Mm -hmm. they react to things now um and and how the the medium structures things and so uh this idea that there are bad dynamics that do bad things to me and to people i love and that i don't like that that's been around cmt has been around But you're right. Until the cohort, I'd never really formulated it as this is a CMT experiment, but I have actual, yeah, the, the the idea of a website that does things that no existing websites do that I think any and every independent academic type of project will probably want to incorporate most or at least many of the elements of, um, that the thinking of that in terms of a CMT experiment does go back to when I was living in Court d'Alene. Um mm. back in like was that, tw- tw- that was the <coughs> winter
0: 20 of 2019.
1: 19, right before yeah. I moved to Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. So um it is uh, time energy and CMT, man. That's where it's at. And so thank you for having us here.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank
1: you for we're about to go meet your family, I think. They're all coming over You're here. Coming? So yeah, time's up.
2: Take cool. care, everybody.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into this. Thank
2: you. We'll see you all next time. Thank
1: you for having us. Take care. Bye bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Cool. Bye bye. End Meeting for All.
0: That'd be a great book title.
1: <laughs>
0: End, meeting for, End all. meeting for
1: All. End yeah. Meeting for All. End
0: Meeting for All. I think that's hilarious that Marshall McLuhan is actually the underground theorist he in this is. book because he's literally
2: underground. That he's is, yeah. No, that's we were funny. just like, we're all like, guys, it's Marshall McLuhan, like, uh, un- unseen. Oh, that's they saw the kitty.
0: Oh.